0: Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents
1: The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire
0: The Sacred Order of Green Zombies Part 3 The Long Night's Watch hello there friends and fellow mythical astronomers it's your starry host lucifer means lightbringer and we're here to put this whole zombie business to rest once and for all or at least until nighttime those zombies are notoriously hard to keep down after all i think i've made my general points in the first two episodes with enough repetition that we don't need to spend a ton of time recapping if you're listening to this Then you liked the first two green zombie episodes, and you more or less got the idea about Undead Skin Changers and the resurrected Undead Fertility God. At the beginning of part two, I mentioned that in the course of looking for clues to tie the green men or horned people to the north, we had talked a lot about The Last Hero, but that we still needed to examine northern culture and the Night's Watch. Well, we can't claim to have done a comprehensive examination of all northern folklore, but we did tackle the King of Winter and the Barrow King. The two which seem to have fairly strong ties to Garth Green or Horn Folk in general. I left off last time talking about the undead skin changer zombie last hero needing some help, so now it's time to talk about the last hero's companions and the original Night's Watch, who are probably one and the same. Performing the voice acting today will once again be Martin Lewis and the Amethyst Koala, so a big thanks to them. Look up Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook for Martin's vocal performances of A Song of Ice and Fire. As well as other cool art and analysis a great big thank you goes to all of our patreon supporters and we've had several people sign up after the first green zombie episode so we appreciate that if you'd like to become a patreon supporter of mythical astronomy and help keep the show going and improving then head on over to Lucifermeanslightbringer.com. that's also where you can find the matching text to this podcast if you'd like to read along and enjoy some cool pictures on the way thanks as always to animals as leaders for allowing us to use their music on the show and thanks to the one and only George R.R. R. Martin, may his pen of creativity flow ever freely. Thirteen Zombies This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter The Orange Man, whom we welcome into the priesthood of the Church of Starry Wisdom. I might as well just tell you, I think the last hero's twelve dead companions were actually twelve undead companions. Said another way, the original thirteen members of the Night's Watch may all have been undead skin changers and green seers. They may have even originally been green men, or descendants of humans and green men, if indeed the green men are some kind of race apart from regular humans. Naturally, I think there is abundant evidence in support of these ideas, or else it wouldn't be the topic of a podcast, so as we go, will sort of be simultaneously examining potential evidence for the idea of Night's Watch Brothers as the Walking Dead and Night's Watch Brothers as Green Men or Horned Folk. Now we are told that the Last Hero's companions all died and I don't disagree, I just don't think that was the end of the story. Rather, I think that they rose from the dead somehow and carried out their mission alongside an undead Last Hero. I've observed that Martin always likes to sneak as much truth in his fables as possible, So the idea of the last hero's 12 dead companions being 12 undead companions fits the mold of myths which are more true than they appear, but in surprising ways, and it strikes me as the kind of thing George would find amusing. Consider this. We are told in the main last hero myth that his 12 companions died before the children gave him whatever mysterious help they gave him, and before he acquired dragon steel, and before he defeated the others. That would leave the last hero confronting the others essentially by himself, unless the children literally fought with him against the others in hand-to-hand combat, which I suppose isn't impossible. However, there is actually one other source of potential information about the last hero to be found, and it gives us reason to believe that the last hero did not confront the others by himself. It comes from a Game of Thrones, and this is from a brand chapter in Winterfell where the assembled northern hosts are drinking and getting all fired up to go to war with Rob.
1: Much later, after all the sweets had been served, and washed down with gallons of summer wine, the food was cleared and the tables shoved back against the walls to make room for the dancing. The music grew wilder, the drummers joined in, and Hothar Umba brought forth a huge curved warhorn banded in silver. When the singer reached the part in The Night That Ended, where the knight's watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn he blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking
0: that doesn't sound like the last hero wandering alone in the wilderness and it doesn't even sound like the last hero setting out with 12 companions to seek out the children of the forest for advice it sounds like the badass knight's watch armed and ready courageously riding out to face the others we know the last hero is the one credited with defeating the others and his deeds are recorded in the annals of the Night's Watch, so it's overwhelmingly likely that this tale of the Night's Watch riding out to fight the war for the dawn is a story about the last hero leading the first Night's Watch. The song itself is called The Night That Ended. But how is this possible if his companions died? Are these new companions, or just the same old companions, risen from the dead? Similarly, Stannis tells Jon that even Azor Ahai did not win his war alone. We are not told who it was that fought with Azor Ahai, but there's a terrific hint about Azor Ahai Reborn leading an army of zombies in a familiar passage from A Dance with Dragons. That's the one where Halden, Halfmaester, and Tyrion overhear Benero, the High Priest of Relore, prophesying about Daenerys Targaryen being the fulfillment of the Azor Ahai Reborn prophecy. Benero says something about smoke and salt, a summer that never ends, and then he says, death itself will bend its knee and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn." Thanks to redditor gangrene424 for reminding me about that passage. We are being told two things here. The first is that Azor High Reborn is someone who triumphs over death, who resists and defeats death. This certainly sounds like someone who could be a literally resurrected character to me, and from a thematic standpoint, it lines up with the idea of the last hero's journey into the cold lands to defeat the others as a symbol of journeying into the realm of the dead to defeat the grave itself. The second thing we are told is that those who die fighting in the cause of Azor Ahai reborn will be reborn themselves. It sounds like a typical promise of a heavenly afterlife for being one of God's chosen warriors that you find here and there in mythology and religion, but it might mean something more literal, an actual rebirth as a zombie warrior to fight at Azor High's side. Although we don't know for sure if Azor Ahai and the Last Hero are the same person, or perhaps closely related to one another, but the chances are good that they are connected somehow, and at the very least, they are parallel figures of myth who supposedly fought the Long Night with a magic sword associated with dragons, and they did not win their war by themselves. Who went to battle with them against the Others? It has to be the Night's Watch, right? I think this would actually be The Last Hero's group of 13 freshly minted skin-changer zombies, beings capable of confronting the others and journeying into the cold dead lands. Think of 12 people like Cold Hands, or like improved skin-changer versions of Beric, with a resurrected Azora High type leading them with Dragonsteel. That's the idea. I am more concerned with what Cold Hands is than who, but if I had to make a bet on exactly who Cold Hands is, my guess would be That he was one of the Last Hero's party. Whether he is or not, I think he serves as a good example of what they might have been like according to my theory, functionally immortal skin-changer zombies. Now I've already explained why I think it would make sense for the Last Hero to be a skin-changer zombie, because zombies don't feel cold or hunger or fatigue, and because skin-changers theoretically make for the best zombies, and the same logic applies to the Last Hero's companions, the original Night's Watch brothers. If they were undead skin changers, they would really be prepared to take on the others by day or by night. For this to be true, we need to find clues that the original Night's Watch were both skin changers and zombies, and this is precisely what we'll be doing today. I briefly considered separating these two ideas into separate sections, but the clues for both seem to come together in the same scenes, so you'll have to put up with a little bit of wandering back and forth between the idea of the Night's Watch Rangers being skin changers, and the idea of the Night's Watch Brothers being undead people. The Graveyard Shift. This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter, Sir Therion Black, the Justiciar, bearer of the Valyrian steel sword altar rage and acolyte of the Church of Star Wisdom. I believe there's a lot to suggest the concept of the undead Night's Watch. To begin with, the Night's Watch is already something of a death sentence as it is. Many people join the Night's Watch to avoid a death sentence, and an instant death sentence hangs over the head of all the brothers, activated as soon as they try to leave the wall without express permission. Mormont tells the Night's Watch pledges that their old life has ended, which I am suggesting used to be literally true. Everything about the Night's Watch is bare, bleak, cold, and devoid of life. That's why Brand's vision of Jon growing pale and hard as all memory of warmth fled him works equally well as a description of the whiting process or as a description of regular life at Castle Black. One of the first quotes from a Jon chapter at Castle Black in A Game of Thrones is,
1: The chill was always with him here. In a few years, he would forget what
0: it was like to be warm. This is a perfect companion to Bran's vision, and similarly, it works equally well as foreshadowing or as a simple description of what it's like to live at Castle Black. The next line continues the idea.
1: He sat on a bench, his fingers fumbling with the fastenings on his cloak. So cold, he thought, remembering the warm halls of Winterfell, where the hot waters ran through the walls like blood through a man's body. There was scant warmth to be found here in Castle Black. The walls were cold here, and the people colder.
0: Cold, like corpses, whites, and cold hands. And notice the series of analogies here, which helps create the image of cold people. The warm water pumping through Winterfell's walls is equated with blood. Then Jon calls Castle Black's walls cold, implying cold-blooded walls. Then he says that the people are colder than the walls, thereby implying people with cold blood. This calls to mind the cold flowing blue blood of the others or the whites dry and frozen black blood. It's not only warmth that's forgotten. The black brothers swear off the joys of sex, fine cuisine and freedom, and the only fellowship they have is with other condemned criminals. Thematically, they are already half dead. If the original black brothers were undead, Seems like it would kind of make sense to me. When we examined the idea of an undead king of winter, we saw how winter corresponds to the death phase of the corn king and the seasonal cycle, and it's the same for nighttime. It ain't called work in the graveyard shift for nothing, you know? The night's watch is defined by their nocturnal activity, and they operate in a land which is constantly in the grips of snow and winter, their castle literally embedded in a wall of ice. People who work in darkness and in the worst of winter. This is the place to look for zombies and undead green men, surely. Just in terms of general symbolism, black is the color of death. It's what you wear at a funeral, you know? Damned if it doesn't make you look like half a corpse when you wear it, for that matter, as we hear in A Feast for Crows. Your lord father would want you to
1: look a proper king at his wake. We cannot appear at the great sept wet and bedraggled. Bad enough, I must wear mourning again. Black had never been a happy color on her. With her fair skin, it made her look half a corpse herself.
0: Now what makes me think Martin might be working a pun here, and not just making an offhand remark about Cersei's complexion, is the idea of wearing black as wearing morning. The Black Brothers are the light that brings the dawn, aka the morning, and they're also the sword in the darkness. But they, paradoxically, always wear black, from head to heel. This seems odd, because we are given a prominent figure called the Sword of the Morning, who has a white sword named Dawn, wears white, and lives in a white tower named after a white sword, whether it's the Stone sword tower at Starfall or the white sword tower in which Arthur Dane lived as the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. The color of the Sword of the Morning is white, right? But on the wall, we have black brothers with black dragonglass weapons playing the role of the sword which shines in the darkness and brings the dawn. And now it makes sense. They are wearing morning. They are the black swords of mourning, I guess you could say. I'm suggesting that they were zombies, and here we learn from Cersei that indeed, wearing black mourning clothes makes you look like half a corpse. Now sure, okay, the potential double meaning in the quote above could easily be coincidence and not meant to have a double meaning at all, but it's far from the only thing suggesting the undead Night's Watch. Mostly, I found that last one a bit amusing, but let's get down to business and consult one of the more underrated oracles of A Song of Ice and Fire is said, He's creeping up on Old Nan and Septon Barth as a font of wisdom, and he has a couple of clues for us about the Undead Knight's Watch. This is from A Storm of Swords, when Ed is talking to Samwell at Craster's after they burn the body of one of the Black Brothers, Bannon.
1: We ride at first light. Did you hear? Sun or snow, the old bear tells. Sam glanced up anxiously at the sky. Snow? He squeaked. We ride? All of us? Well, no, some will need to walk. He shook himself. Diewin now. He says we need to learn to ride dead horses, like the others do. He claims it would save on feed. How much could a dead horse eat? Ed laced himself back up. Can't say I fancy the notion. Once they figure a way to work a dead horse, we'll be next. Likely I'll be the first too. Ed, they'll say. Dying's no excuse for lying down no more, so get on up and take this spear. You've got the watch tonight. Well, I shouldn't be so gloomy. Might be I'll die before they work it out. Might be we'll all die, and sooner than we'd like, Sam thought, as he climbed awkwardly to his feet.
0: This is a great one. Pretty much a dead giveaway, if my theory is right. Dead Night's Watch Brothers manning the wall. I mean, it's right there. Ed said it, so don't forget it. Hashtag Dolorous Wisdom. It's actually right in the Night's Watch vows, too. I shall live and die at my post. But dying at your post is no excuse, so get back up there and stay on the watch, dead man. Notice also that the brothers will be riding out at first light, at dawn, further emphasizing the role of the Black Brothers who wear mourning as the ones who come with the dawn. They'll be riding six dead horses when they come. Yee! We also find that there is idle talk of dead things manning the various Night's Watch fortresses, and this is from that same Jon chapter in A Game of Thrones, where he's just coming to terms with what the Night's Watch is actually like. Jon names the three manned castles of the 19 on the wall, and then thinks to himself that... The other keeps,
1: long deserted, were lonely, haunted places, where cold winds whistled through black windows and the spirits of the dead man the parapets.
0: This could easily just be an innocuous quote to build up the abandoned, deathly atmosphere of the Night's Watch, but when you consider that it comes in this first Castle Black chapter, which basically sets the tone for John's entire arc there, an arc which ends with his death and hopefully resurrection, it seems more ominous and perhaps literal. John himself will become a ghostly spirit manning the parapets after all. Similarly, this is the same chapter that we find John thinking that, In a few years he would forget what it was like to be warm a call out to Brand's vision of John seemingly turning into a corpse. So I tend to look at a line like this one, about the haunted spirits manning the parapets, as fitting in with the other clues in this chapter which are all about John becoming an undead Night's Watchman. In fact, there actually are dead Night's Watch brothers manning their posts on the wall in death for all eternity, the 79 Sentinels. And not coincidentally, We get their story in the chapter where Bran and company meet Samwell at the Nightfort, hear about cold hands, and confuse him for a green man.
1: There are ghosts here, Bran said. Hodor had heard all the stories before, but Jojen might not have. Old ghosts from before the Old King, even before Aegon the Dragon. Seventy-nine deserters who went south to be outlaws. One was Lord Risewell's youngest son. So when they reached the Barrowlands, they sought shelter at his castle, but Lord Ryswell took them captive and returned them to the night fort. The Lord Commander had holes hewn in the top of the wall, and he put the deserters in them, and sealed them up alive in the ice. They have spears and horns, and they all face north. The 79 Sentinels, they're called. They left their posts in life, so in death their watch goes on forever. Years later... When Lord Risewell was old and dying he had himself carried to the night fort so he could take the black and stand beside his son he'd sent him back to the wall for honor's sake but he loved him still so he came to share his watch
0: very touching very touching but it's also just another way of depicting the same idea dead and frozen night's watch brothers manning the wall against the forces of the north for all time additionally Calling them sentinels gives them the symbolism of trees, sentinel trees, which Martin uses to imply double meanings about tree warriors in many places, in my opinion. These sentinel tree soldiers are even planted in the wall just like a seed. A hole is dug, they are put in alive, then covered over. The point of equating them with trees, of course, is to imply them as green seers, as tree people. Their spears also work to suggest trees, being long vertical wooden poles, And finally, they all have horns. Horns, like the green men Bran mentions when he hears about cold hands in the same scene. Because don't forget, war horns are made from animal horns. And yes, the green men have antlers, not horns, but they are essentially the same thing, as we see when Robert is called a horned god while wearing the antlered helm. Additionally, I should point out that many real-world depictions of the green man use branches on his head in place of antlers. You'll notice that antlers and tree branches simply look very similar, and the stagman is the guardian of the forest, so there's a certain unity of symbolism here. That's why Garth's crown of vines and flowers, and even the driftwood crown of the ironborn, and especially the hypothetical weirwood crown of the grey king, play into the horned man's symbolism. Thus, tree people and horn people are functionally very similar, And they are probably the same thing in A Song of Ice and Fire, in that the green men, the horned stag people, are also Green Seers, tree people. The 79 sentinels are a great example of this, having pretty thorough tree symbolism, I really like the idea of them planted in little holes like saplings, that's hilarious, but then they also have those ghostly horns. This is also probably a good time to pass along a really cool bit of etymology which was shown to me. By Westeros.org form users Giant Spider and Isabel Harper. Shout out, guys, as well as my friend Voice of the First Men from The Last Hearth Form. Nice work, everyone. Okay, so the weir in Weirwood. A weir is one of two things one, a fence or enclosure set in a waterway for taking fish, or two, a dam in a stream or river to raise water level or divert its flow. The origins of the word go back to Middle English and has equivalents in Old Norse, V-E-R, meaning fishing place, and Old High German, W-E-R-I-E-N, which means to defend. There are several interesting implications of this, having to do with time being like a river's flow, which the weirwoods are outside of, or of the weirwood as a kind of gate or regulation to the growth of mankind. But the interesting thing for our purposes here is that another name for a fishing weir, a trap to catch fish, is a fishgarth. That's right, a weir is a garth, and a weirwood tree is a garth tree. This may be the singular reason that George chose to name his green man, horned godfellow, Garth, quite frankly, so that he could make this exceedingly clever joke. Martin simply has a habit of reinforcing an idea in as many ways as he can, and we've found a ton of clues tying garth and horned folk to weirwoods already, so this is simply a very amusing log to go on the pile. And yes, that was a firewood joke. To be honest, the Brand chapter at the Nightfort is pretty much all about the Undead Night's Watch. We've just pulled the story of the 79 Sentinels from there, a vivid depiction of Undead Greenseer Night's Watchmen, and of course this is where Brand learns of Cold Hands, the Undead Night's Watchman. And to build on this, there's a really outstanding running metaphor with the leaves in that scene. Yes, the leaves, that's right, the leaves. The important thing to remember about rustling leaves is that rustling leaves are the communication of the greenseers through the weirwood, as we have seen many, many times. So with that said, here's Bran starting to get the heebie-jeebies at the Nightfort.
1: Bran forced himself to look around. The morning was cold but bright, the sun shining down from a hard blue sky. But he did not like the noises. The wind made a nervous whistling sound as it shivered through the broken towers. The keeps groaned and settled and he could hear rats scrabbling under the floor of the great hall, the rat-cook's children running from their father. The yards were small forests where spindly trees rubbed their bare branches together and dead leaves scuttled like roaches across patches of old snow. There were trees growing where the stables had been and a twisted white weirwood pushing up through the gaping hole in the roof of the domed kitchen. Even Summer was not at ease here. Bran slipped inside his skin, just for an instant, to get a smell of the place. He did not like that, either.
0: Rustling of the leaves in the branches of the weirwood is the standard greenseer communication, but here we have a dead version of this. Spindly trees rubbing their bare branches together. Where did their leaves go? Well, they're still rustling, but they are dead and they're on the ground, scuttling like roaches. Best of all, there is an actual weirwood here to anchor the symbolism, meaning the weirwood is like a sign saying, this is what we're talking about here. In similar fashion, the paragraph ends with a bit of actual skin changing. Then a bit later, Brand says that, there are ghosts here, and then proceeds to tell the story of the 79 Night's Watch brothers who once broke their vows and now keep their eternal watch in the ice, which we quoted already. That is another very large sign to tell us what we're really talking about in this chapter. Undead Night's Watch brothers, who are like trees and who have horns. And then...
1: As the sun began to set, the shadows of the towers lengthened and the wind blew harder, sending gusts of dry dead leaves rattling through the yards. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of old Nan's stories. The Tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear.
0: And then we get the entire Night's King story. The Night's King is supposedly a magic-using, oath-breaking Lord Commander who gave his seed and soul to the Corpse Queen in a similar fashion as Stannis does to Melisandre. Thus, it's possible that the Night's King became half a corpse in some sense, like Stannis did. Many have connected the Night's King to the last hero in some way, that number 13 thing kind of jumps out at you, and I'm open to that possibility. I don't really want to dwell on the knight's King, but he sort of fits in with the rest of the ghost stories Brand tells in this chapter, and as we mentioned last time, his corpse queen is believed by some to be a daughter of the Barrow King, whose legend is connected to that of Garth the Green, so that might be an additional implication of dead green men to go along with the other ones in this chapter. The main thing I want to draw attention to in this scene are the leaves, of course, which are now rattling gusts of dry dead leaves. Rustling leaves are green seer talk, so once again, dead leaves imply dead green seers, and the word rattle implies a deathly sort of whisper. Think death rattles, cold hands' rattling voice, and Robert's rattling laughter in the crypts that foreshadowed his death. As everyone settles into sleep for the night, Bran cannot sleep, and the truth of the leaves is revealed, so to speak.
1: Bran wriggled closer to the fire. The warmth felt good, and the soft crackling of the flames soothed him, but sleep would not come. Outside, the wind was sending armies of dead leaves marching across the courtyards to scratch faintly at the doors and windows. The sounds made him think of old Nan's stories. He could almost hear the ghostly sentinels calling to each other atop the wall and wending their ghostly war horns.
0: Now the dead leaves, which were already depicting dead greenseer activity, have become a marching army. Even better, they are immediately compared to the 79 sentinels, who are the undead night's watch. Like the army of dead leaves, those sentinels are an undead army who are named after trees, and of course they have those horns to remind us of the green men. The wind is what sends the army of dead leaves marching across the courtyard, and wind is what powers the ghostly warhorns. Note that the phrase was, winding their ghostly warhorns. And then a moment later, Bran begins to hear the sounds of Sam and Gilly coming up the well.
1: Then he heard the noise. His eyes opened. What was that? He held his breath. Did I dream it? Was I having a stupid nightmare? He didn't want to wake Mira and Jojen for a bad dream. But there, a soft scuffling sound, far off. Leaves. It's leaves rattling off the walls outside and rustling together. Or the wind. It could be the wind. The sound wasn't coming from outside, though. Bran felt the hairs on his arms start to rise. The sound's inside. It's in here with us. And it's getting louder. He pushed himself up onto an elbow, listening. There was wind, and blowing leaves as well. But this was something else. Footsteps someone was coming this way something was coming this way it wasn't the sentinels he knew the sentinels never left the wall but there might be other ghosts in the night fort ones even more terrible
0: here again the rattling and rustling leaves are mixed up with the idea of ghosts that inhabit the night fort and the 79 sentinels is the scary sound the army of leaves or is it the 79 sentinels? They're both the same answer, essentially, undead green man, Night's Watch Brothers. Of course, the noise turns out to be Sam, who is a black brother, tying the idea of the Night Ghosts to Night's Watch Brothers, just as the story of the 79 Sentinels does. And Sam, of course, is no common Night's Watch Brother. You'll recall the Herne the Hunter symbolism of his ancestors, Harlan the Hunter and Herndon of the Horn, twin children of Garth the Green, who married a woods witch and built the castle on Horn Hill. Her and the Hunter is a ghost version of the horned nature god, so Sam is indeed completing the metaphor in spectacular fashion, just like the army of whispering dead leaves and the seventy-nine sentinels. He is very much depicting undead green men as Night's Watch brothers in a chapter where Cold Hands is compared to a green man by Bran. Even better. Sam later recalls to himself that Cold Hands had required him to swear to never reveal Bran's existence, saying, Swear it for the life you owe me. Cold Hands is playing the horned god role of a psychopomp here. That's the term used to describe a deity who causes souls to transition from life to death and sometimes back again. Mithras is a psychopomp, and so is Jesus and Osiris. Cold Hands is implying that he gave Sam his life back, and symbolically, Coming up out of the well is indeed like coming back from the Underworld, the realm of the dead. That's what a psychopomp does, and this little tidbit here reinforces the idea of both Sam as a resurrected person and Cold Hands as a horned god who gave him his life back. Pretty sweet, huh? You'll recall that the Wiccan horned god is called the Lord of Death and Resurrection, and this is why, because he aids the death and resurrection process. A hearty tip of the hat to Patreon supporter, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, one of our twelve earthly avatars of the Houses of Heaven, himself being the Lord of House Sagittarius. He pointed out this quote with Sam owing his life to cold hands. Nice job. I should probably clarify this, actually. How can a god associated with death also be a nature god? Well, a certain aspect of the horned god represents the component death plays in the cycle of life. He's the defender of the woods, and he can kill as nature can. But death always feeds the life cycle, and that is why he is a lord of resurrection. Some versions specifically identify the green man with sort of safeguarding the essence of the green, of life, through the winter months so it can be reborn in the spring. Jack in the green is a great example of this. So throughout all these quotes, what we see is the dead leaves personified as scuttling creatures, a ghostly army, and then finally, Night's Watch brothers. They rattle and whisper like the communication of living weirwoods, but they are dead. The stars of this chapter are the ghost stories, the talk of cold hands, and the weirwood gate at the end, but the running imagery with the leaves makes a nice compliment and very much reinforces the idea of undead skin-changer Night's Watch Brothers. And speaking of the weirwood gate, recall the definition of weir which places an emphasis on being a gate which regulates flow. Here, we have a Weirwood Gate, which literally regulates the flow of people coming through the wall. This is the kind of thing that says to us, yes, Martin understands the various meanings and implications of the words he's chosen to use. I would also add that the Weirwood Gate is not just any gate, it is essentially symbolizing the gates of the afterlife, of the transition between life and death. It is the point through which cold hands cannot pass, because he's quite literally dead. Sam's return through the Black Gate, however, Symbolizes someone who has returned from the other side, if you will. And what's with naming the White Weirwood Gate the Black Gate? Just as the brothers who shine in the darkness and bring the dawn are somewhat counterintuitively dressed in black, the Black Gate is a white Weirwood face. If it was the case that the last hero's dragon steel was a black dragon sword, the true sword that brought the morning, or if it turns out that John will be fighting the new War for the Dawn with a black Valyrian steel sword instead of the white sword named Dawn, think of the wordplay around the morning clothes being black and the black gate being white, and just remember that Martin likes to twist these things around a bit. It's tempting to think that he's just messing with us, but of course there's more intention in his writing than that. He might be messing with us, but he has a plan in mind, have no doubt. The Corpse Lord Commander. This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter and Starry Wisdom acolyte, Silas the Redbeard, Chief of the Redsmiths. Dollar said, has one other really good tip hidden in his sarcastic banter and it comes right after Mormont contemplates the skull in the weirwood's mouth at White Tree and wishes that it could speak. The line there was, The children of the forest could speak to the dead, but I can't. Ed has something to say about that, and this will send us on an exploration of the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch as an archetype in light of our theory.
1: Two men went through each house to make certain nothing was missed. John was paired with dower Edison Tollard, a squire gray of hair and thin as a pike, whom the other brothers called Dolorous Ed. Bad enough when the dead come walking, he said to John as they crossed the village. Now the old bear wants them talking as well. No good will come of that, I'll warrant. And who's to say the bones wouldn't lie? Why should death make a man truthful, or even clever? The dead are likely dull fellows, full of tedious complaints. The ground's too cold, my gravestone should be larger. Why does he get more worms than I do?
0: As we said last time, the simplest explanation for the idea that the children of the forest might have been able to talk to the dead is as a reference to the ability of green seers to hear the voices of the dead from the past. But we also said that it could hint at a more direct contact with the dead. So, what do we make of the Lord Commander wanting to be able to speak with the dead? Is this a hint about the Lord Commander being a green seer or even a necromancer? Consider the Lord Commander as an archetype, a classic role with a prototypical mold set out in the ancient past. The first Lord Commander of the Night's Watch would probably have been the last hero. If he led the fight against the Others in the War for the Dawn, it's hard to see how he wouldn't be thought of as the Commander of the Night's Watch. As we've seen, there is abundant evidence pointing towards the idea of the last hero being a skinchanger or a green man, and a resurrected one at that, so speaking to the dead would have been well within his purview. Heck, he could have just had a conversation with himself and he would be speaking to the dead. We don't even have to comb through the text for symbolic evidence about the last hero being a skin changer to show that the Lord Commander is supposed to be a skin changer. The idea of the Lord Commander as a skin changer is directly implied by the raven that we always see on his shoulder. Think about it. Usually, we only see maesters or green seers with ravens on their shoulders. All the maesters, and all the green seers that we've seen so far, and the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, both Jor Mormont and Jon Snow. Why the Lord Commanders? The Maesters have ravens on their shoulders because they tend to and train the ravens, but Lord Commanders do not do this. Bran, Blood Raven, and theoretically Cold Hands have ravens perched on them because they are green seers or skin changers who occasionally inhabit ravens and are very friendly with the ravens. So why does Martin give us this very memorable portrait of the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch again and again, the King Crow dressed in black fur and wool with a black raven perched on his shoulder? I say it is done because the classic role of the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch was that of a skin changer or a greenseer. Thus, talking to the dead might have been something that he could do. Again, this could simply mean accessing the weirwood net, or it could imply some kind of divination or even necromancy. One has to think of the Night's King, a lord commander who dabbled in dark magic and sacrificed to the others. Was he a skin-changer or greenseer to begin with? Could he raise whites from the dead, or did he have something to do with creating the others who could? As I mentioned before, there are ample clues that greenseer magic was involved in creating the others, so any kind of skin-changer or greenseer ability in the Night's King might explain it. Mormont himself, though not a skin-changer, does really believe in the Old Gods, and this house is rumored to be a house of skin changers. We hear the humorous story of mormont women turning into bears to mate with real bears, no doubt a legend based on an original truth of skin changer magic. Here's a very important point to make, which is overlooked by most, and it suggests a direct connection between the origin of the night's watch and the green seers. We already know that in ancient days, the night's watch used to regularly trade with the children of the forest to receive dragon glass weapons, presumably so they could fight the others if need be. We also know that every black brother who still worships the old gods takes their night's watch vows before the heart trees in the sacred grove of Nine. But consider this, before the Andals came to Westeros with their faith, every single person who joined the night's watch, except for perhaps a couple of ironborn, would have been an old gods worshiping first man, and would have sworn their sacred night's watch vows to a weirwood tree, and thus to the Green Seers. Let that sink in for a minute. The original members of the Night's Watch all gave their oaths to the Green Seers, a tradition kept up for thousands of years. This is a stunning fact which has been sitting right in plain sight since Book 1. This connection between the Green Seers and the Night's Watch is further corroborated when Sam opens the weirwood face known as the Black Gate under the Nightfort by reciting a stripped-down version of the Night's Watch vows as if they were some sort of magic spell. If you think about it, there are heavy implications here. The Night's Watch oath seems to represent some sort of agreement between the Night's Watch and the Weirwood net, which is the Green Seer godhood. It probably means that the Green Seers had a large part to play in founding the Night's Watch to begin with. And when we also take into consideration that the last hero's story involves both the children of the forest and the Night's Watch, and that the children provided dragon glass to the ancient Night's Watch, We can see that the founding of the Night's Watch pretty much has to be intertwined with the Children of the Forest and with the Green Seer magic of the weirwoods. There's also a conclusion to be drawn by examining that stripped-down version of the oath, which I believe can be taken for the original version, since that is the one accepted by the 8,000-year-old weirwood face. All the restrictions about holding no land and fathering no children are gone, and the bit about my watch not ending until my death is also not present here. Sam only says six things. He's the sword in the darkness, the Watcher on the walls, the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, and the shield that guards the realms of men. Basically, all the parts of the oath which have to do with fighting the Others. This agreement is the charter of the Night's Watch, the oath they swore to the Green Seers. so we can conclude that the Green Seers were somehow demanding of the Watch that they always dedicate their lives to fighting the Others. That is what the Green Seers wanted out of this agreement. Now, what did they offer in return? What could have compelled such an oath from the Night's Watch brothers? Presumably, it had something to do with providing assistance necessary to defeat the others. That is the great motivating factor to force the children and the Green Seers, as well as mankind, to do difficult things and make difficult choices. Of course, I would suggest that that assistance might have involved resurrection. This may have been the actual truth behind the legend of the Pact between the children and the first men, whereupon they agreed to a truce and the first men stopped cutting down the Weirwoods, eventually taking up the religion of the children, meaning they became green seers and skin changers. I've long argued that the children saving mankind's bacon during the long night is the most likely explanation for the first men taking up a new religion en masse, that of their former enemy. The Pact was supposedly signed on the Isle of Faces thousands of years before the Long Night, but the supposed timeline of events before the Long Night really isn't worth the paper it's not printed on, in my opinion. So, this really isn't a problem. Additionally, the idea of the Isle of Faces being involved in the Pact simply drags the Green Men back into it. The first Night's Watchmen may have been freshly resurrected Green Men, giving their oaths to the Green Seer who raised them from the dead. Recall also that there's a separate rumor of massive blood sacrifice being done on the Isle of Faces to call down the hammer of the waters. It's possible the legends could be mixed up and that the idea of blood magic on the Isle of Faces actually refers to raising the dead, or even intentionally sacrificing green men just so that they could be raised from the dead. This event could have been the founding of the Night's Watch as well as the signing of the real pact between humans and children, or perhaps a second pact if indeed there had already been one in the ancient past. However this played out in the specifics, I think it's safe to say that the origins of the Night's Watch are rooted in this agreement with the Green Seers, which their oath represents. I believe that all of this fits well with the idea of the classic role of the Lord Commander being that of a skin-changer, and thus the raven on Mormont and John's shoulder makes a lot of sense. The raven would have potentially been a way for the Lord Commander or the last hero, to keep in contact with the green seers hooked up to the weirwood net just as cold hands likely does with his ravens that very thing may be going on already many think that blood raven is skin changing mormont's raven with the big giveaway being that the raven shouts burn to jon when the whites attack mormont in his chambers in a game of thrones it's pretty clearly a suggestion from the ravens to burn the whites which is exactly what jon needs to do and does do and there was nobody in the room saying burn for the raven to have copied. Thus, the idea of Bloodraven skin-changing the Lord Commander's raven and giving him advice is pretty much directly suggested here, way back in Book 1, and therefore any unusual or poignant speech from Mormont's raven is likely to be Bloodraven talking. A great example is John's choosing, which was heavily influenced when Mormont's raven flew out of the kettle, landed on John's shoulder, and then said, Kettle! calling for the vote, which of course went for John in a landslide of arrowhead tokens. This is most likely Bloodraven taking a hand in the selection of the next Lord Commander, something Bloodraven would indeed be highly motivated to ensure went to John. In symbolic terms, it's another sign of the greenseers having influence over the Night's Watch. Perhaps that's how it was done in the old days. The choosing was guided by the favor of the old gods, as shown by ravens or other animals inhabited by the greenseers. So, the ancient men of the Night's Watch swore their vows to greenseers, and I believe the older Lord Commanders were Skin Changers who stayed in touch with the weirwood net. The last hero would have been the first such. That is why I believe that Martin creates such an iconic figure out of Mormont as a raven perch, and why he continued the tradition on over to Jon Snow in such memorable fashion, so that we would always associate the idea of the Lord Commander with having a raven. Eventually, we would figure out that apart from maesters, People who have ravens are usually skin-changers. Naturally, or perhaps unnaturally, we should expect that there would be clues about the Lord Commander being dead to be found. First, there is the fact that both John and Mormont are treacherously killed by their own men, and there's also this nice little joke in A Clash of Kings.
1: I know the penalty for desertion, my lord. I'm not afraid to die. Die! The raven cried. Nor live, I hope. Mormont said, cutting his ham with a dagger and feeding a bite to the bird. You have not deserted yet. Here you stand. If we beheaded every boy who rode to Mole's town in the night, only ghosts would guard the wall. Yet maybe you mean to flee again on the morrow, or a fortnight from now. Is that it? Is that your hope, boy? John kept silent. I thought so. Mormont peeled the shell off a boiled egg. Your father is dead, lad. Do you think you can bring him back? No, he answered, sullen. Good, Mormont said. We've seen the dead come back, you and
0: me, and it's not something I care to see again. We've seen the dead come back, you and me. Because of the wording, You could read this to say that Mormont and John are the dead who are coming back. And of course, John is dead and will be coming back. Mormont doesn't want to see that again, because of course being a zombie is no fun, as we discussed. The old bear actually saw a whited bear at the fist of the first men, and that was no fun either. Also notable is the line, only ghosts would guard the wall, building on the other instances of dead Night's Watch brothers guarding the wall. And of course, a little casual talk of resurrecting Ned, the very first incarnation of the King of Winter that we saw in the books. Rand talks of raising Ned, of course, and there is one more undead Ned scene, which we'll quote at the end of this episode. Continuing with the comparison of the Lord Commander to the Last Hero, let's consider the idea of leading a Great Ranging into the cold, dead lands. Mormont's decision to lead the Great Ranging into the frozen lands to see what exactly is going on with the whited corpses and wildlings and maybe the others might be a sort of echo of the last hero leading the original Ranging into the frozen dead lands. If there is to be one more Ranging into the north, I think resurrected skin changer Jon Snow is the man to lead it, with apologies to Patchface, who offers to lead the Ranging to Hardhome. Actually, we haven't talked about Patchface, oh oh oh, but he is probably another undead person, though seemingly resurrected by some very mysterious kind of water magic. The relevant thing here for our subject is that Patchface wears the antlered helm, suggesting green men again, and he's probably undead, and he offers to lead a ranging into the north. Patchface's skin is tattooed with red and green motley, the two colors of the eyes of green seers, and it's said that before he died, he was a child who could sing in many languages and perform magic. He's a child like the children of the forest. He's a singer, like those who sing the song of the earth, i.e. the children of the forest, and he can do magic, which, yes, applies to lots of people, but a singing child who does magic is a child of the forest, and that is what is being suggested here. Taken with the antlers and the red and green motley, it all seems pretty consistent. Patchface is like a drowned and resurrected green man, a topic which is slightly outside the purview of this essay, but again, the idea of an undead, horned fellow Leading the Ranging to the north is entirely in keeping with the larger pattern established by everything that we've seen so far having to do with the last hero and the Lord Commander being an undead skin changer or horned person who leads a great ranging to the north. One other note on Patchface, he's something of a strange take on Santa Claus, who of course derives from certain horned god, wild man of the woods mythologies. I mentioned in part one that Santa and Satan are both variants of the Holly King the winter-specific personification of the horned god, though obviously taken in different directions. Santa's trademark ho-ho-ho actually originated as something called the devil's bluster, which is the way that the devil character would enter the stage in German and European plays in the Middle Ages. The figure of the Wild Man of the Woods, a specific version of the Green Man mythology, was very popular in those days, and the church had to incorporate him into their mythology somehow. The church was responsible for putting on plays at that time, which of course were used to issue propaganda. The eventual creation of Saint Nicholas, the kind old Santa Claus that we know and love, represents the church attempting to take this forced man figure whom they could not repress and instead baptize him. Indeed, the German name for wild man of the woods was Old Klaus or Furry Klaus, and the Germans, to this day, called the devil Old Nick. The Church Fathers essentially split off the nastier, more carnal elements of the wild man, the uncontrollable aspects, into the goat horned image of Satan, and sanctified St. Nicholas as their acceptable version of this mythology. So, in Patchface, a fairly creepy and disturbed horned figure with jingling bells and red and green motley says, Oh, 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 we ought to hear, Ho, 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 but recognize it as the devil's bluster. And the next time you look at that creepy old photo your parents made you take with that drunken old grifter dressed as Santa at the mall 30 years ago – children of the 80s will know what I mean here – try to be glad that it wasn't Patchface. Essentially, Patchface belongs to a darker tradition behind jolly old Saint Nick which includes such figures as Krampus, the Wild Man of the Woods or Wood Woes, and even the Norse Germanic god Odin or Woden. Hat tip to Patreon supporter, Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dread Ship Eclipse Wind, Earthly Avatar of the Heavenly House Cancer, as well as Westeros.org forum user Ravenous Reader, one of the preeminent minds of the forums. Both of them are actually preeminent minds of the forums. If you're curious to read more about this, check out Phyllis Siefker's Santa Claus, Last of the Wild Men, The Origins and Evolution of St. Nicholas, Spanning 50,000 Years and you can find the link for that on my website at LuciferMeansTheLightBringer.com. The Santa mythology is really interesting, and he's part of the King of Winter side of the Horned God, and since it's Christmas time and all, I figured you'd enjoy that little deviation. So Patchface, the deranged Santa, is probably not leading a ranging into the frozen dead lands, but John might. Mormont leads a ranging, and so too did another very famous Lord Commander, Sir Brynden Rivers, known as Bloodraven. That's actually the ranging he was lost on when he disappeared from history and became the Three Eyed Crow, the last Green Seer, as he's called. As a contributor to the body of symbolism that makes up the Lord Commander archetype, Blood Raven pretty much hits all the marks. He's a dragon blooded Green Seer who became the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and he eventually becomes half a corpse. Some think that he might even have brought Dark Sister with him to the wall and even to that cave which could serve as a stand-in for the Last Hero's dragon steel, and thus complete the symbolic parallel. Bloodraven, like all the other Azor High and Last Hero parallels, seems to be occupied with fighting the Others. Even his house, Blackwood, reinforces Bloodraven's dead greenseer symbolism. The great weirwood tree at Raven Tree Hall is dying, and eventually it will turn into a stone tree. As an adjunct to this idea of the Lord Commander as a skin-changer with a raven, who might be a zombie, let's talk about the whited corpse of Small Paul. Paul is no Lord Commander, but he's many times linked to Mormont's raven, culminating in the scene when Sam is attacked by Paul's whited corpse, who has a raven on his shoulder at the time. The raven is eating Small Paul, presumably in an attempt to aid Sam and Gilly. But the portrait remains of Paul as a zombie skin-changer Night's Watch brother with a raven on his shoulder. Now as I said, before Small Paul dies, quite a bit is made of him wanting to claim Mormont's raven after the mutineers of which Paul is a part kill Mormont. He says he's always wanted a talking bird and asks Chet if he can keep Mormont's raven, to which Chet says yes. Then Lark the Sister Man teases Paul by saying maybe they can eat the bird if they get hungry, to which Paul becomes angry and threatening. And later, when Paul is trudging away from the fist with Sam, he's still muttering about how he was supposed to get Mormont's raven. So when he appears dramatically in undead form with the raven on his shoulder, it seems significant. He's been linked to that raven multiple times, and in the scene when he finally gets it to sit on his shoulder like a raven bonded to a skin changer, he's a corpse. To my eyes, this would appear to be another symbolic clue about undead skin changers as Night's Watch Brothers. And in that same scene, we find several other clues to this effect. Sam defeats Small Paul by shoving a hot coal in his mouth, only discover more whites outside their tent. She stood
1: with her back against the weirwood, the boy in her arms. The whites were all around her. There were a dozen of them, a score, more. Some had been wildlings once and still wore skins and hides, but more had been his brothers. Sam saw Lark, a sisterman, Softfoot Riles, the wen on Shet's neck was black, his boils covered with a thin film of ice, and that one looked like Hake, though it was hard to know for certain, with half his head missing. They had torn the poor Garin apart and were pulling out her entrails with dripping red hands. Pale steam rose from her belly.
0: The first clue was in the description of the Whites. Some wore skins and hides, a possible allusion to skin changing. Many of them are brothers, suggesting Zombie Night's Watch. Put them together and you get Zombie Skin Changer Night's Watch brothers. You'll notice that the word dozen is used, perhaps to suggest the last hero's twelve, although that could just as easily be coincidence. But the best clue comes at the end, with the description of the whites as having dripping red hands, bloody from the horse that they killed. Of course, the five pointed red leaves of the Weirwood are described as looking like bloody hands on many occasions, and the red leaves of the Weirwood are mentioned one paragraph after this quote to remind us of them. So, what we have here is a group of whites with hands like Weirwood leaves, implying the idea of green seer whites, some of whom are black brothers, and some of whom wear skins. And don't forget, this is the scene when Cold Hands appears, an undead black brother who is, according to me, an undead skin changer. Just as with the Night Fort scene, we can observe that scenes that feature cold hands or talk of cold hands is where we find clues about undead Skin changer Knights Watchmen. If you ask me, that's not a coincidence. The Green Rangers. This section is sponsored by Lord Leobold the Victorious the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, an earthly avatar of Celestial House Leo. I've noticed that a suspiciously high number of the Night's Watch brothers can be traced back to the Reach, or to Horned God or Green Seer symbolism. So in this section, we're going to run through all of these examples of Green Rangers and see what there is to find. Of course, we've already talked about John, the Corn King, and Samuel Tarley's Hearn the Hunter symbolism and House Tarley's descent from Garth, but there are many, many more. For a start, there are no less than three Garths in the Night's Watch, Garth of Oldtown, Garth Greyfeather, and Garth Greenaway. I've actually spent time tracing out the actions of these three to see if there's some sort of correlation to the three Baratheon brothers, who impersonate Garth with their stag-man imagery, and there are signs that this is the case. But this series is running a bit long as it is, so, I'll just mention a couple of tidbits. First, the names. Greenaway is suggestive of a green man dying or losing his green, or of nature losing its green. Gray feather could imply death, as gray is the color of corpses, and feather introduces the nature component again. And Garth of Old Town might be a reference to the reach in general, or to the notion of horned lords at Old Town in particular which could have something to do with the Great Empire of the Dawn and the ancient fortress that they most likely built there. Whether or not those interpretations hold any water, the fact that there are three Garths in the Watch is highly suggestive of horned people joining the Watch, and the three Garths, mm, they do some interesting things. All three go on the Great Ranging, and all three survive the Fist of the First Men, which, statistically, is very improbable, since more than two-thirds of the brothers on the Ranging died at the Fist. That's notable for a different reason, though, the great ranging seems like a parallel to the last hero's journey, and we can see that Martin clearly wants us to notice that three Garths went on that journey, as all three escaped the Fist. After the Fist, it turns out that Garth Greenaway was a mutineer, and he even specifically helped kill Mormont. While Alo Lophand was the one to stab Mormont, Garth Greenaway and Alo confronted Mormont together with Baird Steel. Given that Mormont, as Lord Commander, is a type of dead green man figure, this probably speaks of the cycle of green men killing one another. During the Madness of the Mutiny, Garth Greenaway kills Garth of Old Town, and that definitely speaks of the cycle of horned gods killing one another. It's explicit Garth on Garth violence, and I believe it's placed alongside Mormont's murder to help us associate Mormont's death with the Corn King Garth mythology. It's very similar to when we saw Argilac Durrandon, the Last Storm King, killed alongside Dickon Morrigan at the battle known as the Last Storm. The members of House Morgan of the Black Crow on Storm Green sigil were playing the role of Green Man, Last Hero, as a Night's Watch brother, and so we saw the death of Argilac the Horned Lord placed alongside Dickon Morgan's death to reinforce House Morgan's Green Man status. Just as placing Garth of Oldtown's death alongside Mormont's reinforces Mormont's death as part of the Green Man cycle. Now, just as Argilac, the old Storm Lord, is killed by Oris Baratheon, the new Storm Lord. Garth of Oldtown is killed by another Garth. Of course, the idea of one Garth killing another reminds us of Stannis killing Renly, one of the first things that jumped out to me as a parallel between the Garths on the Night's Watch and the Baratheons. Shout out to westeros.org forum user Equilibrium. So what about Garth Greyfeather? Well, he turns up in a last hero metaphor. When Jon finally makes it back to Castle Black after escaping from the group of wildlings whom he climbed over the wall with, He learns about the mutiny at Craster's and that only a dozen faithful brothers are initially thought to have survived and made it back to Castle Black, one of whom is Garth Greyfeather. So that's our dozen true brothers to symbolize the last hero's 12, coming back from the great ranging which symbolizes the last hero's journey. So where's the last hero, the plus one to this dozen? Why, it's Sam, who at the time that John learns of these dozen survivors, is thought to have died at Craster's. He was stuck weeping over the Lord Commander's corpse, like a son weeping for his father, actually, and couldn't be roused to flee with a dozen, although he does, of course, eventually make it back to the Wall. Not only does Sam make an excellent last hero because of his Hearn the Hunter symbolism, his possessing a horn, which may or may not be a magical horn of great significance, and his having been metaphorically escorted back from the underworld by cold hands, the psychopomp, I can't help but notice that Sam has smuggled back a male baby who was supposed to become an Other, appropriately named Monster, and a woman who gave birth to him. If I were to look at this as a parallel, I would see a possible corroboration for the idea that the Starks have something icy about their bloodline, that the last hero might have brought back some icy other genetics that became a part of House Stark. This theory has been proposed before, and more or less revolves around the idea that one of the icy children of the Night's King and the Corpse Queen might have been smuggled south instead of being turned into an Other, thus instilling some measure of ice blood into the bloodline of House Stark, a kind of opposite to the blood of the dragon, if you will. As I've said before, I think it's pretty clearly implied that the Night's King and the Corpse Queen were creating Others by giving their male babies to be made into Others, and I would further suggest that they might have been the first people ever to have done so, the first people to ever actually create Others. In other words, The Night's King story may have taken place during the Long Night and not after, and it may be a story about how the Others were created. If this is the case, then the idea of the Last Hero or some ancient Stark connected to him returning to Winterfell with one of these cold babies would be plausible, and we might be seeing an echo of that event with Sam smuggling Gilly's monster through the wall. We are told the baby's brothers, meaning the Others, will come for him, so I sometimes wonder if the fact that monster has been smuggled south of the Wall will actually trigger an attack on Castle Black by the others, or if perhaps bringing Gilly's babe south of the Wall will break the warding spell of the Wall and allow the others to pass. But that's just a little speculation. The so-called Corpse Queen was a moon-pale woman with cold skin and blue star eyes. I think about her as an ice priestess, a cold version of Melisandre. out to Durin Durndon of the Westeros.org forums. She gave birth to babies who became Others, so Gilly is kind of a parallel for her as a Mother of the Others figure. But unlike Gilly, the Corpse Queen was already a magical being, transformed somehow through ice magic, so it may be that she was simply spitting out Others herself, or that she was capable of transforming her human children directly into Others in the way that the Others presumably do to Craster's male children. The fact that Sam, a Last Hero figure, has taken a Corpse Queen Mother of the Others figure south of the Wall with him could be an echo of the last hero becoming the Night's King as well. Some have speculated that the Night's King used the Black Gate to smuggle his babies through the Wall and deliver them to the Others, and Sam does the opposite, smuggling a male baby who was meant to be an Other through the Black Gate, but in the opposite direction. Anyway, that's enough about the Night's King. The relevant thing is that Sam, the not-so-striding huntsman, is playing the role of Last Hero, and one of his party of twelve is a Garth, Garth Greyfeather. We were already looking at the Great Ranging as a parallel to the Last Hero's journey, so finding this terrific Last Hero math at the end of it really goes a long way to strengthening this theory. So now think back to the fact that one Garth killed the other at Craster's. Seeing this fraternal Garthicide play out as part of the Ranging seems like a strong clue that killing the Horn God is indeed a major part of the Last Hero's story. There's more to say on Garth Greyfeather, too. Much is made of John Snow, the Corn King, using gray goose feathers to fletch his arrows. That's how he knows that the arrow that killed Ygritte wasn't his, for example. Therefore, the gray-eyed crow, John Snow, is kind of a gray-feathered Garth, you might say. If the gray in Garth's name is meant to connote death as in the gray of corpses, John might well qualify as a gray Garth. Then in A Dance with Dragons, John sends out three groups of three rangers each into the north. With one group being made up of Blackjack Bulwer, Garth Greyfeather, and Harry Hal, that was the group that ended up as heads on poles with their eyes cut out by the weeper. I've noticed that the sacrificed bull here is a nod to Mithras's slain bull, so now we can see that Martin is actually showing us two different sacrificed deity mythologies at one time, both of which are part of John's makeup: the slain bull of Mithras and the slain horned nature figure. House Bulwer also descends from a child of Garth, which itself is another clue about Garth people joining the Watch. The third decapitated head from that scene was Harry Hal, who sounds a lot like a hairy wild man of the woods, reinforcing the idea of dead green men in the Watch. Moving right along, we have a ranger named Tom Barleycorn, a clear allusion to John Barleycorn, an English folk character. He's not a horn god, but he is a corn king. His story basically imitates the cycle of the barley plant, with his death and resurrection doing the standard thing of symbolizing the cycle of the seasons. Appropriately, Tom Barleycorn is a scout, someone skilled with woodcraft. John smells him before he sees him when he emerges from the wood, and perhaps that's a fermenting barley beer joke. It's also worth noting that when the blue-eyed corpses of Jafer Flowers and Othor were brought back to Castle Black, they were put in the ice cells the same ice cells which are foreshadowed to hold John's corpse. And when Jaffer and Othar are put in there, it describes the ice cell as a dark, cold cell chiseled from the ice and used to keep meat and grain and sometimes even beer. Grain, as in corn grain and corn kings, beer, as in fermented barley and thus Tom barleycorn, and meat, as in dead meat, like the whites in John's corpse. John will be actually representing all three of them together, however, being the resurrected corn king figure. Also take note that Jafer Flowers has a nature-based name and he comes from the Reach, home of Garth and houses founded by Garth's children. Othor, meanwhile, is found with a hunting horn evoking Herne the Hunter, a dead horned figure, just like poor Othor here. We'll actually return to the scene of Othor's corpse in just a minute for a bit more forensic examination. There are certainly some horned fellows in the watch, there's a fellow named Jarman Buckwell, whose house sigil sports a rack of golden stag's antlers. He has a distinctive horn, which Mormont can recognize upon hearing. And Jarman sounds a lot like Jorman, the OG hornblower himself. That's a great example of Martin showing us that we are indeed to associate musical horns and stag antlers, as I claimed he did with the 79 Sentinels and their horns. Next we have Gren, who is called Orox because he is as big and shaggy as an Orox. And an orox is a horned animal similar to a hairy bull or a bison. Gren is one of the twelve loyal brothers to survive Crasters and make it back to Castle Black, it should be noted. Winton Stout comes from House Stout, who actually lives at Barrowton, evoking the dead Garth idea of the Barrow Kings. Ulmer, formerly of the Kingswood Brotherhood, deserves a mention because the Kingswood Brotherhood are a Robin Hood like group that lives in the woods and protects the people. And Robin Hood is very much a descendant of the Green Man, Protector of the Forest mythology. In the appendix of A Clash of Kings, I found that George even hid an Elrond in the Night's Watch, like Elrond of Rivendell, the ruler of the Rivendell elves in Lord of the Rings. Very sneaky. Garrett Greenspear is suggestive of a Green Warrior, with Garrett being potentially derivative of Garth. The same may be true of Garrod, the ranger spooked by the others whom Eddard executed at the beginning of A Game of Thrones. Kedge White-Eye doesn't have green man symbolism, but his one blind eye reminds us of Bloodraven, a green seer with one blind eye. Similarly, Todder, known as Toad, doesn't show us any horned or green man symbolism, but he reminds us of the frog people that live in the Neck and frequently manifest the green gifts. Daron is a singer, as in those who sing the Song of Earth, and he's from the Reach. For that matter, Toad likes to sing as well, he just doesn't have as nice of a voice. Like piss poured over a fart, I believe the description was. There was a Lord Commander called the Black Centaur, which is certainly suggestive of skin changing in a symbolic sense, since a centaur is a combination of man and animal. There are several Night's Watchmen associated with wood, like Daiwen, who has wooden teeth and can smell the whites coming on the fist. Leathers and Jax, two wildlings who join the watch, are called Sons of the Haunted Forest by John. The name Jax may be an allusion to Jack in the Green, a character related to Tom Barleycorn, who keeps the green areas alive in the winter to be reborn in the spring. And a man called Leathers, who is from the haunted forest, might remind us of Bloodraven, whose only remaining skin is described as white leather and who essentially lives below the haunted forest, or perhaps a bit beyond it. Leathers, the wildling, is also known for being ferocious and a little bit terrifying, evoking the scary wild man of the woods idea. Then we have Wick Whittlestick, one of the a holes that murdered John, Whittlestick is wood symbolism, and the word Wick adds the idea of fire to the mix. Now we can also see that John Snow plays into the pattern of Azor Ahai Green Men people being treacherously killed by other Azor Ahai Green Men people. Wick Whittlestick is a burning tree person, which is essentially the same as a burning stag person. Another a hole is Sir Alisar Thorn, a man named after a prickly plant. In the Nightfort chapter it mentions that a huge thornbush had taken over the training ground where brothers used to fight, a hilarious parallel to Alicer Thorne training the brothers in the yard at Castle Black. This also equates the thornbush to black brothers with swords, thereby implying the brothers as plants who fight, building on the symbol of Sir Alicer and our other plant people, Night's Watchmen. Sir Alicer also adds a dragon element, because he came to the Wall as the price for being loyal to the Targaryens, when Tywin sacked King's Landing. And there's actually a few people who can claim that same origin story for being sent to the watch. Big Little comes from the littles of the mountain clans of the north, and their sigil is a green and white tree line pattern with three pine cones. The pine tree is a distinctly winter-associated tree, it should be noted, because it's an evergreen. Pine trees can also be a symbol of immortality, actually, as they can live an extremely long time, up to 5,000 years at least. Those same mountain clans dress up as trees and bushes when they attack Deepwood Mutt under the command of a fiery stag Azor High person, Stannis Baratheon, showing us tree people connected to Azor High and stag men once again. And while we're mentioning Stannis, Stannis does in fact come to the Wall and in a way take over the Night's Watch, flying his fiery heart banner over Castle Black, leading the fight against the Watch's enemies, and forcing the Brothers' hands in many things. Stannis is also a tremendous Night's King parallel, as we've discussed many times. And I've even found a line the other day where Stannis jokes about taking the black. So all of that suggests a burning stag person coming to the Night's Watch and taking the black. Thorin Smallwood's name evokes a wooden person, and it may be a nod to Thorin the Dwarf from the Lord of the Rings. The Smallwoods come from Acorn Hall, which happens to be the location of very heavy, Arya as a children of the forest symbolism. Arya is dressed up in a green dress with acorns, to which she says, I look like an oak tree, reminding us of tree people in general, and Garth the Green in particular, he who planted the oaken seat and personifies the oak king, ruler of summer and green things. Quite memorably, Arya is called skinny squirrel by a fellow named Greenbeard. The children of the forest are called squirrel people by the giants, and the child known as Leaf is many times compared to Arya, by Bran. Now, there's a lot more to this Arya Children of the Forest thing, but I don't want to digress too much. There is actually more squirrel children symbolism in the Night's Watch to be found, as we find a Jeff the Squirrel hidden in the appendix of a Feast for Crows, and then there is Bedwick, called Giant, and here I simply have to pull from A Clash of Kings. John heard a rustling from the red leaves above. Two branches parted. And he glimpsed a little man moving from limb to limb as easily as a squirrel. Bedwick stood no more than five feet tall, but the gray streak in his hair showed his age. The other rangers called him giant. Bedwick is a ranger who is both old and child-sized, just as the children of the forest are a very old race who are called children because of their small size. Bedwick is a squirrel person, just as the children were called squirrel people, and he's inhabiting a weirwood tree like a seer. He's even making the leaves rustle like a seer. He's climbing the tree in a quest to see better and gain knowledge, a symbolic match for the Weirwood greenseer bond. Now when the brothers are sheltering from the rain outside of Craster's in a clash of kings, Bedwick the giant crams himself inside the hollow of a dead oak, and asks John how he likes his castle. A dead oak king is kind of like a dead garth in a certain sense, so Bedwick is kind of skin changing a dead garth tree. Living in a dead tree, at the very least, is evocative of a dead green seer Bedwick's name also intrigues. It unites the idea of fire via the word wick and dreaming via the word bed. Thus, he's implying a fiery green seer living in a dead garth tree, dreaming away about whatever it is that dead fiery green seers dream of. Perhaps they just rewatched the burning bush scene of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston over and over. It should be noted that Bedwick was also one of the twelve faithful and true brothers who made it back to Castle Black after the mutiny. Kill the Green Boy, let the Green Man be born. This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter and Starry Wisdom acolyte, Kathleen the Ruthless, captain of the Ironborn ship Night Terror. To finish up on green men in the Night's Watch, let's talk about green boys in the Night's Watch. The phrase green boy is essentially a combination of green man and child of the forest, and I believe Martin is using green boy in metaphors to symbolize green seers, green men, and children of the forest. Most often, this description is applied to Starks, Rob, Bran, and most of all, Jon. Sometimes it's the other Night's Watch brothers, and when it's not a Stark or a black brother, it's generally being used in some kind of metaphor related to the same subject matter. I don't want to get lost following every green boy pun out there, but let's tackle one, the action around John taking his Night's Watch vows in the Grove of Nine and finding the whited corpses of Jafer Flowers and Othor on the way back, and then the following night where John battles the whited corpse of Othor in Mormon Solar, all of which stretches across two consecutive John chapters of A Game of Thrones. First of all, Sir Alicer gives about the most backhanded promotion ever, telling John, Pip, and the rest that they are as hopeless as any boys he's ever met, and that their hands were made for manure shovels, and so on. He explains that despite their manifest unfitness to serve, new recruits are coming, and so he has decided to pass eight of you on to the Lord Commander to do with as he pleases. His final warning is a memorable one and one which the TV show used because it's simply awesome in its transcendent grumpiness.
1: Pip let fly a whoop and thrust his sword into the air. Sir Alisa fixed him with a reptile stare. They will call you men of the night's watch now, but you are bigger fools than the mummers' monkey here, if you believe that. You are boys still, green and stinking of summer, and when the winter comes, you will die like flies.
0: Ah, good old Sir Aliser. I think his translation of how to win friends and influence people might be off a bit. English to Westerosi common tongue translations are notoriously unreliable. Jokes aside, though, he's laying it on pretty starkly. Oh, <laughs> that wasn't jokes aside. That was a... Okay. Anyways, he says, you're green boys. You smell like summer. And in the winter, you will die. That's what the green man does, what the corn king does, what the horn god does. Some of those myths move the dates around a bit, but that is the general idea, a summer king or a summer phase in the cycle, and a winter phase or a winter king. When John goes to say his vows in the Weirwood Grove of Nine, all of this becomes quite apparent. He starts by recalling the last words Benjen Stark ever spoke to him before leaving on his fateful ranging. You're no ranger, John. Only a
1: green boy with the smell of summer on you.
0: This line is repeated twice, once when Benjamin says it, and once here in John's memory, which tends to make me think that it's an important line. As the idea of the recruits being green boys is emphasized elsewhere by Sir Aliser and others, I think it's safe to say that it's something we should pay attention to. John is a green boy, especially before he says his vows. A page later, As John actually does go to say his vows, he goes through the icy tunnel under the wall, and feeling the vast weight of the ice pressing down on him, he thinks to himself that the air was colder than a tomb, and more still. When they emerge from the cold dark walls of the tomb-like tunnel, the light is a sudden glare, which causes Sam to blink. It's the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. This is pretty obvious death and rebirth symbolism here and reinforces the idea that only dead or undead brothers should really journey north of the Wall, which John thinks of as having ridden past the end of the world. They reach the weirwood grove of Nine, and as the last light faded in the west and gray day became black night, John and Sam say their vows. Then we have a very important pronouncement. The woods
1: fell silent. Your Nelters boys, Bowen Marsh intones solemnly. Rise now, as men of the
0: Night's Watch. So now the Green Boys are. Green Men, right? Formerly Green Men? Formerly Green Boys? Dead Green Men is more accurate. Remember again that all the original Night's Watch brothers would have journeyed through the icy tunnel tomb and come beyond the end of the world to swear oaths to the Green Seers in their Weirwoods. Green boys go beyond the grave and come back Men of the Watch, symbolically reborn with their greens sucked away. Interestingly, and probably not by accident, the man who tells Sam and John to rise as Men of the Night's Watch, Bowen Marsh, is one of the four people who will betray and murder John. So in a time-loopy kind of way, John's death is symbolized here as he rises from the snowy ground under the watchful eye of his killer, no longer a green boy. Bowen Marsh's nickname is the old pomegranate, and pomegranates are of course a symbol of being abducted to the underworld, as in the Persephone myth, so even before we knew Marsh would kill John, his pomegranate nature lends an element of coming to and from the underworld to the scene. Again, I would not be surprised if this ends up being where John is resurrected. As soon as they finish swearing their vows and getting ready to leave, Ghost appears between two weirwoods holding a dead hand. This leads the brothers to the whited corpses of Jafer Flowers and Othor, where John faces a reality check.
1: My uncle's men, John thought numbly. He remembered how he'd pleaded to ride with them. God, I was such a green boy. If he had taken me, it might be me lying here.
0: When green boys go north of the wall, they end up as walking corpses. I believe that's again the message here. That's what John just did, symbolically. As usual, Martin reinforces an important theme all throughout the chapter, and so we find that not even one page after John thinks of himself as a green boy who could have become a white, he recalls the nightmare that he had the previous night. It is only a wood, John told himself, and there
1: are only dead men. He had seen dead men before. Last night, he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time, the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening, one after the other, as the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves. John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. Even when Ghost leapt up on the bed to nuzzle at his face, he could not shake his deep sense of terror. He dared not go back to sleep. Instead, he had climbed the wall and walked, restless, until he saw the light of the dawn off to the
0: east. Don't forget that John himself once played the role of a Ghost waking from the crypts of the Kings of Winter, when he played that prank on the younger Stark children by covering himself in flour and hiding in the crypts. This dream of the kings of winter waking is kind of like a companion to that scene. So in this chapter, what we have is John imagining himself as a green boy turned corpse, followed immediately by a recounting of a dream of the kings of winter waking from the dead, a dream which also foreshadows John's resurrection as the new king of winter. The final line about John restlessly walking the wall until he can see the light of dawn is a nice poetic touch that just sort of encapsulates John's purpose in the story as the ultimate personification of a watcher on the walls. It's also a nice bit of Venus morning star action. Venus is called the light bringer, the dawn bringer, and the sun of the morning because it rises low in the sky in the pre-dawn hours and shines brightly, an usher and a herald to the coming dawn. John, who is a morning star figure, replicates this by climbing to the top of the wall, putting himself low in the sky, and then awaiting the first rays of dawn, which Jon greets with relief. This is probably a good time to point out a bit of last hero math that can be found in the crypts of Winterfell. On two occasions, actually. Just put a pause button on Jon. He's standing in the haunted forest, looking at the whited corpses of Jafer and Othor, while remembering his dream of the Kings of Winter waking from the crypts. We are going to bounce over to the crypts for a minute, and then come back to John in the woods here. Alright, so in a Game of Thrones, Bran and Maester Luwin and Osha and Hodor go down into the crypts after Bran had that dream of Ned's ghost visiting him in the crypts. They pass eight statues of Kings of Winter and Kings in the North and Stark Lords, then Rickard, Brandon, and Lyanna to make nine, ten, and eleven. Then they come at last to Ned's empty tomb, making dead Ned the twelfth member. Luwin takes his torch and thrust his arm into the blackness inside the tomb, as into the mouth of some great beast, almost as if to set Ned's ghost on fire or something, and then out pops Rickon and Shaggy Dog as the last hero plus one figure. Shaggy has eyes like green fire, and his fur is as black as the pit around them, so he's giving us the association of green magic mixed with fire, as well as shadow and darkness. He fights with his brother, a wolf named Summer with golden eyes, so we can see, even in the wolves, a kind of fratricidal rivalry of light and darkness. We've seen the last hero and his group of twelve killed by an Azor high figure many times, so here it seems like Lewin's torch and Summer the wolf will be playing that role, bringing fire against the last hero character. The torch is dropped at the feet of Ned's brother Brandon, giving us a fiery Brandon Stark, which I, which I take as an allusion to a fiery King of Winter, and or as an allusion to Bran losing the use of his legs to gain access to the fire of the gods. The second last hero math starring the Kings of Winter comes in a clash of kings, just after Bran wakes from warging into Summer. Bran was in Summer, surveying the damage to Winterfell left by Ramsay's burning and sacking. Interestingly, this is the scene where Bran and Summer see the infamous Winterfell dragon, the great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. Bran also kills an elk while he's in summer, so what we've got here is a horned figure dying and a dragon being born. And when Bran wakes, we get the last hero math. Asha lights a torch, filling the world with orange glare, waking a sleeping Rickon, and then it says, when the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well, meaning the dead kings of winter were rising too, just like Rickon, who was just playing the last hero in the last scene. Bran proceeds to name off 13 Stark lords, ending with the line, This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead, where the living feared to tread. The last one listed is Cregan Stark, who fought Aemon the Dragon Knight. There's our suggestion of a Last Hero figure fighting against a dragon Azor Ahai character. So now, let's go back to Jon in the Haunted Forest with the corpses of Jafer and Othor. The two corpses of the brothers are taken back to Castle Black and put into one of the ice cells, along with the grain and beer and meat, as we noted a moment ago. This is another likely foreshadowing of John's own corpse being put in the ice cells to go along with John seeing his own reflection in the wall of the ice cell in A Dance with Dragons, as Wick Whittlestick, the man who will kill John, opens the door so John can slip inside. When John gets back to Castle Black, he learns that King Robert is dead and that Ned has been thrown in a cell. And that's yet another foreshadowing of John being thrown in the ice cell. And hearing this very bad news, John leaves Mormont's solar and...
1: Outside, one of the guards looked at him and said, Be strong, boy. The gods are cruel. They know, John realized. My father is no traitor, he said hoarsely. Even the words stuck in his throat, as if to choke him. The wind was rising, and it seemed colder in the yard than it had when he'd gone in. Spirit summer was drawing to an end. The rest of the afternoon passed as if in a dream. John could not have said where he walked, what he did, who he spoke with. Ghost was with him, he knew that much. The silent presence of the direwolf gave him comfort.
0: Earlier in this chapter, we get a definition of spirit summer. It's when the summer season is giving up its ghosts at last. Everything here is about the death of the green man, the Summer King. John went out and did his death and rebirth ritual with the Night's Watch vows, only to come back and learn that Robert the Horn God was dead, and right as summer is giving up its ghosts. This is yet another reminder that Robert is the Summer King whose death heralds the onset of winter, and out in the yard we have cold winds rising. This is when the King of Winter must be reborn, in the winter. And it's even noted in this chapter that John had been a babe when the last winter began. This appears to be some very specific foreshadowing of John's death and sojourn in Ghost's body here. John's words, one of which is traitor, stuck in his throat as if to choke him. Very like the traitor's knife, which will kill him by slashing him across the neck. After this symbolic death, the rest of the afternoon passes as if in a dream. John is now dead, symbolically, and he's passed into the limbo realm. He doesn't know where he is who he's speaking with or what he's doing because he's in the limbo realm which is basically the in-between place it's kind of nowhere but hey all he knows is that ghost is with him and that gives him comfort that's about as good as foreshadowing gets quite frankly when john is walking in limbo the one thing he knows is that ghost will be there with him because his limbo will be inside of ghost not only that but there's some more Venus symbolism here, as John descends from Mormon's solar, like Venus descending from the heavens as the even star, chokes on his words to simulate death, and then walks around in a dream with Ghost, simulating the soul in limbo. But then at the end, he and Ghost ascend back up to Mormon's solar, just like Venus rising as the morning star, whereupon John and Ghost play the hero and fight the Whites with fire and sword, tooth and claw. You'll notice that John is given a new Valyrian steel sword for this act too, showing us the last hero acquiring his dragon steel through some act of valor. In fact, John's previous sword was taken from him only hours before, after John lost his temper and attacked Sir Alisar in the common hall for insulting his father, and that again shows us the last hero losing his sword before gaining dragon steel. This idea is repeated when John pulls one of the swords from the dead guards to use against the Whites only to lose it in the fight. That dang old last hero man always losing his sword. Come on, man. As for Longclaw, the dragon steel that John wins from this fight, it was pulled from the fire of the Lord Commander's solar, from the fire of the sun, in other words, just as Lightbringer is supposed to be. That doesn't make Longclaw Lightbringer, but it does mean that it is symbolizing Lightbringer, or whatever we're supposed to call the last hero's sword. The main point I want to drive home is that these two chapters show us, again and again, that John will die and be reborn to become the new last hero, the new King of Winter. It's even emphasized when John is sort of placed in house arrest in his room right before waking to fight the Whites. He wakes in the darkness, shivering uncontrollably, and then slowly pushes himself to his feet, as if rising from the dead. He rises as a frozen person, but he's burned while playing the last hero perhaps indicating the process for John. Perhaps his body will be cold-whited first, and then cleansed with fire, as we suggested in Part 1. That seems to be a pretty popular choice from the feedback I've received so far. Ice first, then fire, with an assist from the Green Seer magic of his bond with Ghost, and possibly Bran. Saving the best for last, there's one very clear example of our idea of undead Night's Watch Brothers, which I believe is the most important example of all. The Scarecrow Brotherhood. This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter Sir Dale the Winged Fist, the last scion of House Mud, captain of the dread ship Black Squirrel, and member of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand. In a storm of swords, the Night's Watch brothers of Castle Black are preparing for the wildling attack that is coming first from the south and then from the north of the wall and they do an interesting thing. They make scarecrows. Men in black cloaks
1: were visible on other roofs and tower tops as well, though nine of every 10 happened to be made of straw. The Scarecrow Sentinels, Donald Noy called them. Only were the crows, John mused, and most of us were scared enough. Whatever you called them, the straw soldiers had been Maester Eamon's notion. They had more breeches and jerkins and tunics in the storerooms than they had men to fill them, so why not stuff some with straw, drape a cloak around their shoulders, and set them to standing watches? Noy had placed them on every tower and in half the windows. Some were even clutching spears, or had crossbows cocked under their arms. The hope was that the Thens would see them from afar, and decide that Castle Black was too well defended to attack. John had six Scarecrows sharing the roof of the King's Tower with him, along with two actual breathing brothers.
0: There are a couple of things that make this relevant to our quest for knowledge and understanding. The first is that the Scarecrows come to be associated with missing black brothers.
1: The brothers had even started wagering as to which of the Straw Sentinels would collect the most arrows before they were done. Dolorous Ed was leading with four, but Othel Yarwick, Tumberjohn, and Wat of Long Lake had three apiece. It was Pip who'd started naming the Scarecrows after their missing brothers, too. It makes it seem as if there's more of us, he said. More of us with arrows in our bellies, Gren complained. But the custom did seem to give his brothers heart, so John let the name stand and the wagering continue.
0: The Scarecrows are already honorary Black Brothers and here they are associated with a specific Night's Watch brothers who are absent. Gren adds the connotation of death, saying that the Scarecrows only make it seem like there are more dead Night's Watch brothers, with arrows in their bellies. That's the thing I want to hone in on here. The Scarecrows represent dead brothers. More specifically, they represent undead brothers. Remember when I mentioned that Beric Dondarian is called a Scarecrow Knight? It happens three times, actually. And like the quotes about the Scarecrow brothers, they are all found in a storm of swords.
1: A Scarecrow of a man. He wore a ragged black cloak, speckled with stars and an iron breastplate, dinted by a hundred battles.
0: Note the use of the word ragged, as it adds to the Scarecrow symbolism, because Scarecrows were often stuffed with rags. The word ragged is quite often used to describe the blacks of the Night's Watch, probably to emphasize the link between Scarecrows and the Black Crows of the Watch.
1: Any knight can make a knight, said the Scarecrow that was Beric Dondarrion. And every man you see before you has felt a sword upon his shoulder. We are the Forgotten
0: Fellowship. Not only is he a Scarecrow, he is a Scarecrow who is a member of a Brotherhood of Knights. The King is dead, the
1: Scarecrow Knight admitted. But we are the king's men, though the royal banner we bore was lost at the Mummer's ford when your brother's butchers fell upon us. He touched his breast with a fist. Robert is slain, but his realm remains, and we defend her.
0: The ramifications of this are pretty obvious. Beric is a fire undead person in a black cloak, and he's a scarecrow. Therefore, those scarecrow brothers the Night's Watch make might be symbolizing Undead Night's Watch. Fire resurrected scarecrows like Barrick, and we do indeed get a big, giant, flaming red clue that we are supposed to associate the scarecrow brothers with fire and dead people in John's dream of wielding a burning red blade. One of the most important scenes in the entire series.
1: Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried. As foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders, John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again.
0: In other words, the only brothers John has in this scene are the Scarecrow Brothers, and they are on fire, burning scarecrows just like Beric, a scarecrow knight with a black cloak who is animated by fire magic. And we can indeed take this as a clue about the original Last Hero and the original Night's Watch because Jon is mimicking Azor Ahai and the Last Hero in this dream. He's playing the role of Azor Ahai by wielding the Burning Red Sword, that's hard to miss, and by slaying his love, Ygritte, as he does later in the dream, just as Azor Ahai slew his love, Nissa Nissa, with Lightbringer. He's paralleling the Last Hero by defending the wall by himself against the forces of the North who sound like ice spiders and whites. But again, he's not actually alone, because he has those burning scarecrow brothers. A dozen Barracks, perhaps, instead of a dozen cold hands. Co- cold hands <that> is Sounds like a shiver. I'd like to emphasize, again, that Lord Beric might be one of the most important characters in the books, purely in terms of symbolism. Barric combines the flaming sword and fire resurrection symbolism of Azor Ahai Reborn with a not-so-subtle Raven impersonation. The one red eye, the weirwood throne in a cave full of weirwood roots, the Lord of Corpses title, and so on. In other words, Barrick implies a Lightbringer-wielding, fire-undead scarecrow brother who was also a green seer, and that is a big, fat bingo. Now we can see that his scarecrow associations are no accident. They are done specifically so that we might decode the meaning of the scarecrow brothers manning the wall, particularly when you take John's dream of wielding Lightbringer alongside burning Scarecrows into account. And that meaning is clear enough now. The Last Hero's companions in the War for the Dawn were undead Night's Watch brothers, most likely fire undead ones. The Scarecrow Brotherhood, everyone. You'll recall that during Beric's fight with the Hound, Beric's sword breaks, just as the Last Hero's sword was said to break from the cold. And twice in that fight, the Hound's sword is referred to as cold. Once it says, The flaming sword leapt up to meet the cold one. And then as the Hound is about to break Berwick's sword, it says, Lord Beric blocked the cut easily, but the burning sword snapped in two, and the Hound's cold steel plowed into Lord Beric's flesh, where his shoulder joined his neck and clove him down to the breastbone. The blood came rushing out in a hot black gush. Thus we are given a pretty strong impression of our undead greenseer Azor Ahai person having his sword broken by a cold sword, just as the last hero's sword snapped from the cold, and just as we saw Sir Waymar's sword snapped by the other's crystalline ice swords in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. You'll also notice in one of the passages we just read that Beric mentions being loyal to King Robert, who is dead, and Sandor even calls Robert the King of Worms while in Beric's cave. In other words. Beric serves a dead horned god, and this, of course, goes along with all the other references to undead horned gods around the Night's Watch in The Last Hero. That same idea pops up again in one of the quotes about the Scarecrow brothers from A Storm of Swords.
1: The west had gone the color of a blood bruise, but the sky above was cobalt blue, deepening to purple, and the stars were coming out. John sat between two Merlins, with only a Scarecrow for company and watch the stallion gallop up the sky. Or was it the Horned Lord?
0: The Horned Lord is a constellation named after a king beyond the wall called the Horned Lord, who led an attack on Westeros using sorcery, as we mentioned last time. We don't know if he was a horned green man, or more likely a wildling chieftain playing into this powerful line of symbolism, but of course the point here is to continue to draw associations between the Night's Watch and horned folk, specifically to dead horned folk. Here we see John, who will probably end up as some sort of burning scarecrow himself, standing next to one of his scarecrow brothers, looking up at their horned lord together. There's a nice companion to the scene in A Dance with Dragons, when Bran wargs into summer and sees the dead Night's Watch brothers which Coldhands slaughtered with his ravens.
1: The direwolf's pale yellow eyes drank in the sights around them. A nest of entrails coiled through a bush, entangled with the branches. Steam rising from an open belly, rich with the smells of blood and meat. A head staring sightlessly up at a horned moon. Cheeks ripped and torn down to bloody bone. Pits for eyes, neck ending in a ragged stump. A pool of frozen blood glistening red and black.
0: A paragraph later, the ripped black clothing of the slain brothers are called ragged cloaks. We just saw John staring at the horned moon with his scarecrow brothers, and now we have dead brothers staring at the horned moon. So let's consider these dead brothers as a symbol of John. They are ragged, and one has a ragged stump for a neck. Note the use of stump to imply tree people, people made out of wood. The scarecrow brothers are stuffed with rags and straw, with straw being similar to wood, especially wicker, so we find these brothers implying rags and wood. Specifically, dead brothers made of rags and wood. That ties in nicely to both the scarecrow brother idea as well as the wicker king of winter idea. The fact that these dead brothers end up inside of a wolf, Summer and the other wolves are actually eating them in this scene, probably correlates to John going inside of his wolf when he dies. Hopefully his spirit will not be eaten by ghost. it wouldn't really make much sense for that to happen, so I assume it won't but it is a nice way to show the dead Night's Watch brothers who seem to parallel Jon as being both dead and inside a wolf. The dead brothers also manifest some snaky dragon symbolism. Their steaming entrails coil through the bush like a snake ensnared in a tree, like Bloodraven perhaps, a white dragon ensnared in the roots of the weirwood. The pool of blood shows us Targaryen colors, but frozen, just as Jon is a cold version of a Targaryen. The brothers of the watch are said to bleed black blood, kind of a euphemism, so frozen black blood is creating a black ice symbol, which is specifically tied to the night's watch. It also reminds us of Melisandre's death warning to John.
1: Ice I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. It was very cold.
0: The black and red frozen blood also remind us of the current state of Ned's black ice sword. It now shows waves of night and blood, or another time it's blood and black the ripples shown. Black ice turned the color of blood and darkness. That's exactly what we see in this puddle. Mel is implying it too, ice she sees and daggers in the darkness, frozen blood. But that's really just a description of Ned's sword. Read the line again ice, she sees. It's even a capital I, ice, because it's the first word of the sentence. She sees ice, a sword in the darkness, represented by frozen red and black blood. Waves of blood and night, seen in a sword formerly called ice. It's the same thing. As I mentioned in part two, the twin concepts of black ice and frozen fire basically symbolize John, who wields Lightbringer in his dream armored in black ice and who arms his brothers with frozen fire. His hunger for Winterfell is once described as being as sharp as a dragonglass blade, and there's also a line from A Storm of Swords where Stannis says to Jon, I have found you here, as you found the cache of dragonglass beneath the fist, and I mean to make use of you. Even Azor Ahai did not win his war alone. It's a direct comparison between Jon and his dragonglass, and it's implying Jon as a weapon in the hands of Azor Ahai. John himself is the weapon, the sword in the darkness, a sword of black ice burning red. Now I know these symbolic merry-go-rounds get a bit confusing sometimes, so I want to be clear. John and Ned's sword are both black ice and frozen fire, representing a certain kind of unity of ice and fire. The puddle of red and black frozen blood and Mel's vision of daggers in the dark and frozen blood are referring to the same thing. John Snow, a weapon of black ice, who is, in my opinion, destined to wield black ice, now known as Oathkeeper. We just need to get it up to the wall, but we have two books left. So this puddle of black ice blood and frozen red blood evokes John in several ways, and it's coming from a dead tree man brother wearing scarecrow rags who stares up at the horned moon, just as John did in his scene with the scarecrow brother. The horned moon ties these scenes together. And when we recall that the Horned Moon was also used to foreshadow the death of another King of Winter, Robb Stark, we can see that the Horned Moon in these scenes with Jon and the Dead Nights Watch Brothers is also foreshadowing Jon's death and transformation into a burning scarecrow, in emulation of the resurrected Horned God and the King of Winter. One final note on this grisly tableau, as a symbol of Jon's death and resurrection, it's worth noting that the entrails coiled through the bush reminds us a bit of the first men's habit of sacrificing people and stringing up their entrails in the weirwood branches, which is something they used to do. I'm not sure if Coldhands did this intentionally or if it's merely a nod to the reader to think about weirwoods and human sacrifice in conjunction with these dead Night's Watch brothers, but it's worth pointing out. Returning to the topic of scarecrows, we see that they are also tied to the 79 sentinels who wind their ghostly warhorns. Not only are they called Scarecrow Sentinels and Straw Sentinels, we also get this line as John and Donald Noy ascend the wall in the winch cage after hearing two horn blasts from atop the wall.
1: The wind was whipping at the black cloaks of the Scarecrow Sentinels, who stood along the ramparts, spears in hand. I hope it wasn't one of them who blew the horn, John said to Donald Noy, when he limped up beside him.
0: The Scarecrow sentinels stand with spears in hand, just like the 79 sentinels, and now they might be winding their horns too? If they're trying to wake the sleepers, they might be waking themselves. Kidding aside though, this is a pretty clear association between the 79 sentinels with their ghostly warhorns and the Scarecrow brothers, and their newfound habit of blowing horns. This makes sense, because both are giving us clues about undead green men Night's Watch brothers. Interestingly, one group is frozen, and the other is burning. Now that we have examined the King of Winter ideas relating to the Wicker Man, we can see that these burning scarecrows actually fit right into the Green Man mythology. They are the spitting image of the King of Winter, burning at the end of his reign, and these fiery scarecrow brothers are in service to Jon Snow, the probable future King of Winter. It makes sense that the King of Winter symbolism is extended to the Night's Watch, because the Night's Watch also serves that same role of bringing the spring. This is the kind of corroboration from multiple angles that we should find whenever we uncover a mythological influence behind A Song of Ice and Fire. Martin always leaves multiple references for us to find. For example, we might see that Martin has chosen the title King of Winter for his ruler of the North, and wonder if he intends a reference to the Wicker Man King of Winter. But when we see the burning scarecrows serving the probable King of Winter, John Snow, we can basically be sure that that is what's going on. Then we look at the theme of the Night's Watch, bringing the spring and ending the long night, we see that that also lines up with the purpose of the wicker man perfectly. There's even one more line of corroboration of these ideas pertaining to the King of Winter as a burning wicker or straw man, and that can be found in two scenes where we see whites being set on fire. A burning wreath. For the King of Winter. This section is sponsored by Patreon supporter Luna of the Mayari, Blade of the Goddess. Fittingly, the first involves Cold Hands. It's the scene where Brand's company is fighting its way up the hill to get to the safety of Blood Raven's Cave. Amazingly, this scene is actually a perfect parallel to the scene at the end of Game of Thrones, where Miri Maz Dur performed her blood magic on Drogo. We discussed that scene in the first zombie episode as a potential parallel to Jon's resurrection, highlighting the fact that we saw dancing shapes silhouetted inside the tent. The shadow of a great wolf and a man wreathed in flames. Now listen to this scene from A Dance with Dragons which takes place as Bran has already skin-changed into Hodor's body and killed White with Hodor's sword. Up above them, flaming figures
1: were dancing in the snow. The Whites, Bran
0: realized.
1: Someone set the Whites on fire. Summer was snarling and snapping as he danced around the closest. A great ruin of a man wreathed in swirling flame. He shouldn't get so close. What is he doing? Then he saw himself, sprawled face down in the snow. Summer was trying to drive the thing away from him. What will happen if it kills me? The boy wondered. Will I be Hodor for good or all? Will I go back into Summer's skin? Or will I just be dead?
0: That's pretty much the same language. A man wreathed in swirling flame versus a man wreathed in flames. Summer is the great wolf. Both the Burning Whites and Summer are specifically described as dancing, just like the dancing shadow figures in Mary's tent. That's about as clear a sign as can be made to tell us that these two scenes are somehow meant to be linked to one another, so the important question to ask is, why? Well, I suggested that Drogo's botched resurrection ceremony may be a parallel to John's resurrection, so consider the subject matter of this scene with that in mind. Bran is talking about what happens when a skin changer dies, where his soul goes. That again is what I like to call a big fat bingo. Also, featured in the scene, about one paragraph later, a skin changer getting kicked out of a body that he was inhabiting. Bran is kicked out of Hodor, and that too is a bingo. This is all stuff that relates to John's resurrection, something which Bran himself may take part in. The important things in this scene are the dancing great wolf and the man wreathed in flame. The wolf clearly signifies Starks and skin-changing in this scene, as we claimed it did in the scene with Mirri Mazdor and Drogo, since Summer is literally a wolf skin-changed by a Stark. So what about the Burning Man? In the tenth scene with Miri, we interpreted that as the fireside of Jon's heritage, his Targaryen ancestry. The idea of a flaming person lines up with Danny calling herself fire-made flesh when she wakes the dragons. But here in this scene with Bran and cold hands, the man wreathed in flame is a burning white. What does this mean? Well, taken with all the previous information about burning scarecrows and the King of Winter, I'd say this still represents John's fiery side, although this time it would be his future as a fiery undead person. There's a clue about what kind of fiery undead person John will be in Bran's scene a paragraph later, as Bran returns to his body lying in the snow, and we read, The burning white loomed over him, etched tall against the trees in their icy shrouds. By superimposing the burning white over a tree, Martin has created the image of a burning white as having branches over his head, like a green man with branches in place of antlers. He's also created the image of a burning tree, and the flames of this white cause the tree to lose its icy shroud, which it dumps on top of Bran. If we look at the tree itself as a greenseer symbol, we can see it transforming. It's a frozen white tree covered in a shroud, think funeral shroud, but then it throws off its shroud and turns into a burning tree, as if it were coming back to life. That's also why George uses the expression wreathed in flame in both this scene and the one in Mary's Tent of Dancing Shadows. A wreath is a green thing associated with Christmas and winter. A flaming wreath implies a fiery green, winter-associated thing, which is exactly what the King of Winter is. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Those of you who read or listened to The Grey King and the Sea Dragon we know that the red leaves of the weirwood, which are usually described as bloody hands, are once described as a blaze of flame among the green, and thus we have an analogy of the weirwood as a burning tree. There's a lot more to it, including the Grey King's burning tree and the fire of the gods, so I recommend checking that one out, but take my word for it that Martin is indeed using the burning tree as a symbol of the weirwoods. Think of Moses and the burning bush, where the burning bush was the voice of God's knowledge and wisdom just as the weirwood, a burning tree in a manner of speaking, bestows the power of the old gods on the greenseer, and the knowledge and power of the gods is of course often described as the fire of the gods. Thus, it is no accident that the dancing white wreathed in flame in this scene is showing us a burning tree image. It's merely another greenseer clue, but attached to a burning undead person. Essentially, there is a synergy between the king of winter and the weirwood. They are both burning tree people. The second scene with burning whites reinforces the interpretations of the first scene, as well as showing us the burning wicker man as the king of winter with amazing clarity. This is John recalling the burning of the white in Mormont's chamber, as he's being given Longclaw for saving the old bear's life. Leading up to the quote we're about to hear, John thinks to himself that he sometimes dreamed of somehow earning his father's sword, ice, through some act of valor, even saving Lord Eddard's life. Now he saved the life of a kind of father figure, Lord Commander Mormont, and he's being given the sword meant for Mormont's son. That's pretty cool because it conflates Eddard, a King of Winter symbol, with the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. We've already seen that they both overlap with the last hero to some extent. Keep that in mind and check out this scene, which opens with Mormont speaking. I would not be sitting here if
1: it were not for you and that beast of yours. You fought bravely and more to the point. You thought quickly. Fire. Yes, damn it. We ought to have known. We ought to have remembered. The long night has come before. Oh, 8,000 years is a good while, to be sure. Yet if the night's watch does not remember, who will? Who will? chimed the talkative raven. Who will? Truly, the gods had heard John's prayer that night. The fire had caught in the dead man's clothing and consumed him as if his flesh were candle wax and his bones old dry wood. John had only to close his eyes to see the thing staggering across the solar, crashing against the furniture and flailing at the flames. It was the face that haunted him most, surrounded by a nimbus of fire, hair blazing like straw, the dead flesh melting away and sloughing off its skull to reveal the gleam of bone beneath.
0: Breaking in for a moment, so far we have Mormont remembering that the Night's Watch is supposed to fight with fire, which lines up well with the idea of the Last hero's 12 being burning scarecrows, fiery undead. Even better is the description of the white. His hair is like straw, just like a scarecrow, and his bones are like old dry wood, which makes us think of a burning tree person again, just like the burning white etched against the trees in the scene in front of Bloodraven's cave. And just like the whites in the cold hand scene with Sam and Gilly, where they had bloody red hands to symbolize the weirwood leaves. And of course, most of all, like the burning scarecrow brothers mounted on wooden poles. The corpse of Jafer had that same hair-like straw description as well, strengthening the idea of the whites as straw men. The corpse also staggers across the room. Is that a playful double usage of the word stag to make us think of a burning stag man? Might have to say probably so. Because we already know that the burning stag man and the burning scarecrow ideas go together. Don't forget, this is Othor's corpse, the guy with the hunting horn. He's already showing us her in the hunter stagman symbolism, so why not have him stagger a bit? A strong evocation of the Wicker Man actually comes in the description of the White's hair blazing like straw. By calling the white old wood and straw, we are really being given the picture of a wicker man. If only this burning wicker man were somehow associated with the King of Winter in the scene. If only. Hmm. Ah, Mr. Martin Lewis, if you would do the honors, please. Whatever demonic
1: force moved Othor had been driven out by the flames. The twisted thing they had found in the ashes had been no more than cooked meat and charred bone. Yet in his nightmare, he faced it again. And this time, the burning corpse wore Lord Eddard's features. It was his father's skin that burst and blackened, his father's eyes that ran liquid down his cheeks like jellied tears. John did not understand why that should be, or what it might mean, but it frightened him more than he could say.
0: Oh holy hell, it's the king of winter as a burning corpse, made of straw, who used to be a Night's Watch brother. This dream has never really made any sense as anything other than John's subconscious generating scary things for a nightmare but now we can see that it makes wonderful sense. Depicting Eddard as a flaming corpse, one which was just associated with being made of straw and old wood is, is, well, I'm I'm out of superlatives, but it's the king of winter is what it is. His destiny is to become a burning corpse, likely for the good of all humanity, at least everyone who likes it when winter eventually gives way to spring. That's why this dream terrifies John on a deep level, He's staring at his destiny as a fiery undead king of winter, a skin-changer-zombie-corn-king-extraordinaire. Titles, titles. And just to top off all that, the original scene in which John and Ghost fought the white in Mormon Solar contains yet another echo of the dancing pair of the great wolf and the burning man, though it's not spelled out as clearly. It doesn't have the tight matching language, but it is nevertheless a scene with a great wolf and a burning white fighting one another a scene in which John symbolically comes back to life and becomes the hero, winning himself a new sword of Dragonsteel while burning himself in the process. And that is what we call foreshadowing. b b bonus round. Trees body-snatching people. This special bonus section is sponsored by our most generous Patreon supporter, who wishes to remain silent but whose support speaks volumes. Thanks a lot, Mr. Okay, so I've mentioned the idea of undead green seers a few times, but what exactly does that mean? How would that work? We've talked extensively about the idea of resurrected skin changers and the process by which you might make one. The human spirit is stored in the animal, the human body is resurrected by some means. And then either the human spirit or the merged human animal spirit is somehow put back in the resurrected body. Presto! But what happens if you swap out the skin changer in this process for a green seer and swap out the animal for a weirwood tree? It would look something like this a green seer who was wedded to the trees is somehow killed, and his spirit goes into his home weirwood, or perhaps just into the weirwood net as a whole. But before his spirit could completely dissolve into the green godhood, someone comes along and resurrects the green seer's corpse. Is there a way for the green seer's spirit lurking in the weirwood to take possession of his old body again? Now consider the skin changer example, where the skin changer's spirit merges with his animal and the combined spirits are put back in the resurrected corpse. And again, swap in a weirwood tree for the animal. What if some part of the tree, some piece of the weirwood gnat intelligence came along with the greenseer spirit when it was put back into the reanimated corpse. This would be like trees body-snatching people, in a sense. Pretty freaky, right? Instead of a wolfman zombie, it would be a treeman zombie. That would actually be a more perfect incarnation of the wicker man King of Winter. Best of all, because Ghost the direwolf has the same blood and bone coloring of the weirwoods, which John remarks upon a couple of times, John's resurrection process using Ghost's body as a storage vessel basically symbolizes the weirwood process that I'm talking about. John won't be a weirwood zombie, but he's symbolizing one, which makes us wonder about the original Last Hero or King of Winter, or maybe the Night's King or Azor High. I'd throw the Grey King and his weirwood throne in there too. And what about Bran? Could his boy's flesh die only to have his spirit go into the weirwood net and then, I don't know, body snatch Hodor for good and all? Or perhaps if George doesn't want to make Bran such an evil body-snatching villain, maybe Hodor dies and then Bran will take up his corpse. There are countless examples of trees being personified as human in the books. Take a look at the prologue from A Game of Thrones, for example, which is stuffed full of trees having clutching fingers or human emotions. It goes through every book. We have burning, drowned, and frozen trees all acting like people again and again. My favorite example of tree people comes when Asha is fighting the mountain clans who are dressed up in tree camouflage at Deepwood Mott. She recalls to herself the stories that she's heard about the children of the forest fighting the first men in ancient day and how they turned the trees into warriors. I don't think George is going to give us tree ents like Lord of the Rings, but trees body-snatching people, or their corpses, might be his macabre version of it. There's a great clue about making soldiers from trees in a dance with dragons, actually, and I'll just read this one myself. Danny is speaking with Zarozo and Daxos, discussing the evils of slavery, and she asks Zaro if he knows how the Unsullied are made. He says, "Cruelly, I have no doubt. "'When a smith makes a sword, "'he thrusts the blade into the fire, "'beats on it with a hammer, then plunges it into iced water to temper the steel. If you would savor the sweet taste of the fruit, you must water the tree. To which Danny says, This tree has been watered with blood. And Zara replies, How else to grow a soldier? There are obvious parallels between the Unsullied and Zombies. The Unsullied have had their personalities almost completely destroyed and erased, and they've been turned into basically mindless zombies who do whatever they are told by their master. Here we learn that to make soldiers like this, you must water trees with blood. That's exactly what people did with heart trees in the distant past and the occasionally not-so-distant past, and I've already suggested ways in which blood sacrifice to trees might be used to create zombie soldiers. The meaning of this passage, therefore, may be that the idea of the children turning the trees into warriors might equate to making undead greenseer tree-man zombies. Or how about this? What if it's not really the weirwood consciousness trying to body snatch people what if there's some old greenseer stuck in the weirwood net trying to get out is there some old green man in the weirwood net like job from the lawnmower man that's a great movie everyone should watch if they haven't already the word weir refers to a wooden fish trap set up on a river or stream remember so are these weirwoods in some sense a trap it's a trap they do store consciousness the souls of the deceased greenseers So that lines up, but is there an implication here that someone is stuck in there against their will? Since a fishing weir is also a fish garth, might the weirwood be some kind of trap for garth people? Let's set aside the idea of the weirwood trapping people against their will and just think about the trap as in a repository. We are told that all of the trees on the Isle of Faces were given faces to witness the pact, and it is somewhat implied that blood sacrifice might be a part of giving a tree a face and Opening a tree's eyes so green seers can look through them. My guess is that if giving a tree a face does involve human sacrifice, it might be the green seer who wants to enter the tree who is sacrificed. When we are told of the trees in the Isle of Faces being given faces, and separately told about blood magic sacrifice of either humans or children of the forest on the Isle of Faces, as I mentioned, what we might really be hearing about is the story of green men being sacrificed so they can enter the trees. And give them faces and eyes. It might have been the initial entry of mankind, or green mankind, into the weirwood net, or even the creation of the weirwood net in the sense that we know it. It may also be that these sacrificed green men were made into tree man zombies, using the process I just described. You know, there's there's just something unpleasant about the weirwoods. Perhaps it's the fact that they're always screaming or angry looking, weeping blood, Or maybe it's the bloody mouth and leaves like bloody hands. These trees, they just don't look happy. Are they being tortured? Are they being skin-changed against their will? It's a question I've always wondered about. I mean, do they like having bloody faces carved in them? And do they like humans and children of the forest and green men wearing their skins? Or are they perhaps performing some kind of awful sacrifice for the good of mankind and the entire Earth itself, with their suffering etched on their faces to remind us? Did they trap evil Garths, or did they allow their skins to be shared so that mankind might survive or achieve some important goal? Is the face of the weirwood the face of Garth and his green men, making them Garth trees for real? That would be my guess as of right now. Now, I've thrown out a lot of questions and speculation here at the end, so as to provide some food for thought. I like to confine my speculation to the things that we've seen in the books and to things which can be logically deduced from adapting what we've seen in the books. The skin changer resurrection process is laid out pretty clearly, so swapping a tree in for an animal is really just logical deduction. If a skin changer's animal can be used as a temporary storage vessel or soul jar, then a tree should work too, perhaps even better. We've been shown all manner of tree people and people trees that's what the weirwoods are on a most basic level, trees with hands and faces, And here, using the magic that we've been shown in the books and a little bit of logic, we can see a way in which a tree consciousness might come to inhabit a person or an undead corpse. Or maybe a golem body made of ice, who knows. The world is full of possibilities when people can body snatch animals, people, corpses, and trees. And if the trees can body snatch back, well, that would be what I would call dark fantasy. Part of me thinks that having created all the mechanisms needed for this trees body-snatching people to occur, George might be unable to resist. We'll just have to wait and see what kind of zombies we get. One thing is for sure, the winds of winter are sure to bring us plenty of walking corpses. We hope you've enjoyed the Green Zombie series so far. Check out all our other episodes and essays at lucifermeanslightbringer.com, And if you appreciate this kind of long-form analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, and you have the means to support us, then please consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, and earning yourself a grandiose Mythical Astronomy nickname, or even a Mythical Astronomy t-shirt. A big thank you to all of our patrons. Your contributions mean so much to us. Thanks to Martin Lewis and the Amethyst Koala, and everyone who contributed with helpful finds and observations. As always, thanks to Animals as Leaders for providing the music to our show and thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for providing fodder for our imaginations. We'll be back soon with another Weirwood Compendium episode, so until next time...